Hello? Hey, James. Uh, how are you doing? Uh, uh, good, man. I, I think I hung up on you on the first call there. You'd you think I know how to use Skype by now. Yeah, well, you're probably out of practice since uh, since we were in person last time we recorded. It's been a while. Yeah, for sure. You want to get uh, episode 30 underway? Yeah, let's go for it. So our last show was from London. You know, it was at the uh, the Braemont event, episode 29. How, how have things been since then, since you got back? I, I found, for whatever reason, like that was only a, like essentially 48 hours I spent in London. You were there a little longer, but not a lot. And yeah, I was really jet-lagged for whatever reason. I don't, I don't know. I, it didn't hit me that hard this time. I mean, I was getting up at uh, about 4.30 when I got back home, which is acceptable to me. It seems like, I don't know if it's that one less time zone than I get hit with when I go to like Basel or Geneva, but uh, 4.30 I can deal with. 3.30 is, is rough, so I, I, I used the time well. I I finished my Ranel Fines book that I talked about in the last show, so, you know, big thick book. I, got, I had a couple hours to get through that every day. So. Nice. I, yeah, I just found I went to bed early every day for about like a week. Maybe it wasn't even jet lag, maybe it was a combination of things, but yeah, it was a it was a fun trip, and, and obviously if you, uh, if you didn't listen to the last episode, go back and check it out. You know, it's one of the rare ones that we got to record in person. This episode's going to be a little bit of a different thing because uh, we, we want to get back on the Q&A train and we're not entirely sure how to do it, whether we do it with Q&A episodes or this is going to be more of a blended episode. So we're going to give it a try and see what people think. But this episode will kind of go live on the first day of Basel World, So it's a bit of a wash as far as there's no way for us to time an episode to come up really close to Basel World. Like, I actually, I think it works fine for episode 31, which will come out, you know, two weeks after the start of Basel World or after about three or four days after the show ends. You know, I, I would say that I think this is kind of the best way we can do it as opposed to taking some sort of a weird break just to time it out correctly. You know, we, we were able to change just a week to match up with SIHH, but it didn't really work out for Basel World. So we thought we'd break up the format a little bit. So we're going to have some loose chat and then some Q&As at the end. Don't worry. Like I said, we will have a full recap of Basel World for episode 31, which I believe comes out on April 4th. So that'll be after we've had a chance to get home, sleep a bit and collect our thoughts. So it should be a pretty coherent show. Yeah. Personally speaking, I don't think anybody wants to hear me talk for an hour and a half like right after Basel World. <laughs> right. And we're not going to have a chance to... Uh... To probably record at Basel. I mean, you know, we've we've talked about our schedule there, and uh, you know, I'm just booked solid from the time I land to the time I fly home, and I'm I'm sure you are as well. Yeah, it's bonkers. I mean, you, yeah. you you know, you'll have a certain amount of meetings that you do at the show during the day, and and because with the blog to watch crew, this will be my fifth Basel. I think we always stay up really late to get work done. So we don't start super early in the morning. Usually, just kind of just before lunch. But we go as late as we can, and that includes, you know, additional meetings into the evening, and then sometimes there's an event or whatever, and then you get back to your, you know, Airbnb and start actually working, and this year I'm going to be editing the vlog, so the few of you that followed the vlog for SIHH, I think you saw that it, you know, it's not like it's hard work, but it's fairly time consuming, especially because you want to put something up every day, which is, you know, the goal. Uh, So yeah, I mean, unfortunately, I would love to be able to do a a face-to-face you know, a field report, but I think our best chance to actually see each other will be the day before Basel. Right. And th- and then I'm sure we'll walk into each other a couple times in the various halls. But other than that, I think it's going to be either in very noisy kind of dinner environments or not at all. Yeah, definitely not, not a chance to uh, 
to uh, get together and record. I mean, I, you know, you, you guys keep some crazy hours and uh, my schedule's kind of tipped the other way. I tend to start early. I've got a couple of breakfasts with, you know, some folks, Risty from Instagram and Bill Yao from, from Mark II watches. And those are like at eight in the morning. So I'm kind of, kind of weighing things at the early end of the day. And then you, of course you, that's about the time you're going to bed. So I, I don't think we're gonna be able to record, but at least we have a couple of, uh, we've got a couple of events that, that we're going to overlap on. We won't be able to record, but at least we'll see each other at, uh, at Oris and at Nomos and, and the, the tutor event that's going to be the night before the, the show opens. So, you know, yeah. we'll, we'll, we'll have some fun together. Yeah, for certain. Now, uh, where do you think we start? You want you want to just kind of start with, uh, what we're kind of looking forward to at Basel? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's kind of, you know, the brands, brands tend to really like anniversary years and, and it's kind of a, it's kind of a big one for for the kind of the two behemoth brands or two of the behemoth brands. One, of course, Rolex has the, the 50th anniversary of the Sea Dweller and then Omega's got their 60th anniversary of the Seamaster, the Speedmaster and the Railmaster, which all debuted in 1957. So I'm sure we're going to see some really cool some really cool stuff uh, from those two brands. Uh, Wouldn't it be exciting to see like a, a, a new 38 or 40? to 40 millimeter Railmaster. Oh yeah. Yeah. It'd be great. I mean, the, they did a Railmaster a few years back that, uh, was kind of before they got into the sort of coaxial thing. I mean, it might've been at the very dawn of that kind of the 2500 movement, but uh, yeah, they had a 2500, uh, Railmaster, a really big one. And I think a smaller one. Yeah. The, the, the big one was massive 49 millimeters or something. And then the small one was like 38 or 39 um, look really good looking watches. I, I hope they do Beautiful. something with, with that this year. And, you know, rumors fly. I mean, I think, you know, we've probably both heard rumors about what these brands are going to do, but, uh, you know, we'll, we'll certainly find out probably on the first day, first day of the show next week. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's typically, you definitely find out about Rolex. I'll, I'll try and capture this in the vlog, but Jason, you and I often end up seeing each other that first day because Rolex has this giant booth and all of the windows um, into the little cases, they're all covered. And then at a certain time that first day, all the covers lift up and you basically, (laughs) that's basically when everybody knows what's happening. So last year, everybody's running from one window to another to try and collect their thoughts on, oh, this is new. This is new that we saw last year that we saw this year, you know, we've got this, we got that. And, uh, and, and so, you know, last year you had a lot of people looking at the, uh, Explorer one and trying to figure out, is that a different one or is that the same one? And then, Uh, you know, obviously the Air King was easy to pick out with, uh, you know, a big change to the overall aesthetic. Yeah. Uh, so that that's always kind of a buzz. And you see pretty much everybody who's pretty interested in, in quick coverage. Right. Will be will be right there. So you always see the guys from Hodenkey and you see the guys from Fritello and usually the dudes from Monochrome. And, and it's always kind of a good little kickoff to the the uh, the overall pace of the week because that's on press day. Right. Uh, so so it's a little slower. It's not as busy. Um, trying to get from one part of the hall to another in in Basel world once the public days are open, which it's all but the first day, is crazy. I mean, you're just dodging a billion people. Some of them have strollers. They're all carrying, you know, bags from various booths. And n- nobody's moving quickly. Like, nobody comes there to be in a rush aside from us. <laughs> right. And I find from the minute I land... In Switzerland, I'm 30 minutes late for everything. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like it's almost impossible to keep hard to a schedule. Right. Well, we've got our we've got our new our new gear that we've talked about for about the past uh, 11 or 12 months uh, to test out here at Basel. I mean, we had that episode a long time ago about Basel bags, and I think you found just the right 
tool to take in the Tenba, and I've got, you know, I've always complained about the heat in the hall, and I've got that great uh, Uniqlo sort of comfort. I think they called it the comfort sport coat that we've talked about before. So I, I think we've we've learned our lessons in the past. I think we'll we'll hit the ground running and at least be comfortable and uh, uh, well suited with our bags this year. Yeah, I'm not at all worried about the bag. I, I tried a couple times to buy one of those comfort jackets, and uh, they're just sold out. So we we clearly, I think I think the site wasn't prepared for the the Graynado <laughs> bump. <laughs> yeah, right. So we definitely sold a whole lot of blazers, maybe. <laughs> yeah, right. So uh, you, you know, going back to to Rolex, um, you know, I think I saw a couple. Everybody likes to do these sort of mock-ups of what they think is coming you know, in terms of new watches and, you know, there's everything from GMT Pelagos, which is, uh, you know, we talked about that in our wish list episode, but mm-hmm. the one, you know, the big one of course is going to be the Sea Dweller. And I do wonder if they'll do something that everybody kind of hopes they'll do, which is like a double red text uh, Sea Dweller that kind of harkens back to the original, you know, who knows? Rolex always kind of keeps you guessing right up until the last minute and then typically kind of disappoints you. They'll do some sort of a platinum Sea Dweller with a light blue dial or something like yeah, that. Yeah, like they did with the Daytona. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> I remember standing outside the booth like we were talking about and that came up and everybody just kind of like deadpan looking at that. <laughs> yeah. 280 gram yeah. worth of platinum for your wrist. I actually saw one in the wild at a car rental place in Toronto. This guy was arguing about wow. renting like 10 Hyundais. Oh, jeez. And he had uh, he had that that ice blue <laughs> plat- with, the, with the brown ceramic. <laughs> bezel or you know daytona and but i mean man what a hit last year with the with the new one yeah so i mean they they must who knows who knows i mean i I think it'd be surprising if they did nothing for the 50th anniversary but i almost wonder would is it better for them to do it at basel or to wait i don't know i mean like patek waited right right uh until the fall to do their stuff with the uh with the nautilus yeah and you know it was a pretty mixed reception, but I think that was more n- not so much the fact that they waited till fall. It was what they released. Yeah, it's it'll be interesting to see the direction that that Rolex takes it because they do kind of set the tone for the show. Yeah, and I think they are the main traffic driver for blogs and 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 all that sort of thing is is covering Rolex. Uh, so I, I think they're they're kind of a linchpin, a really a really important aspect of the show from a coverage standpoint. But it's always exciting to see the route they go i mean you know uh, i think that i think we've talked in the past that the explorer 2 is now six seven years oh sure that's true on on, on its current look yeah you're right uh, so i mean we we could i mean last year they did a handful of models so we had the new daytona but we also had a refreshed explorer one and the air king and a different yacht master hmm. so there's a chance that they would refresh that line i my guess is it just comes down to whether or not it's selling right and uh, and and I know I saw some reports on the Rolex forum that uh, some guys had called their AD and the AD had said they couldn't get any more SD4Ks, the current yep, I ceramic sea dweller. Yeah. So I mean that's a pretty good indication if Rolex isn't going to sell them through to their ADs mm-hmm. that something else is coming, a new SKU. Yeah. Um, whether or not that's some crazy limited edition thing or co-brand, co-branded with Comex. <laughs> could you imagine i mean like i mean like the funny thing is is anything's possible until you start talking about Rolex. yeah right where it becomes a mix of there's a ton of things that doesn't seem possible yeah that they could do yeah and then you add in the like well you might as well just roll the dice i mean can you imagine i mean i i would just wish one year rolex would let their hair down and just give everybody what they truly want like you know you show up at their booth and they'd have like a full-on 
Comex, you know, diving habitat, like outside the booth and sea dwellers all around with red writing and Comex labels on them. And, you know, I mean, they'd never do that. They're just such a conservative uh, company. But man, you know, I guess one can dream. They, I mean, they must be because they want to sell watches, but they don't outwardly operate as though they care. Yeah. About the, you know, what the enthusiast really, really wants. And then they kind of go through these phases where they give them something like a big platinum Daytona and make them wait for the new one. Yeah, right. And then it comes and people blow up. So I guess it's a, a good strategy. Yeah. Maybe we'll see some some interesting, but, you know, not enthusiast-driven sure. 50th anniversary model. And then in a year or two, some new... new. I mean, what can they really do to the to the SD to make it better? They can change some, you know, colors or something like that, I, I suppose. No but, yeah, right. Matte dial? Been, Ooh, painted dial? Hmm. Who cool. knows? I yeah. mean, it doesn't seem like them. No, but it doesn't. Technically, they could do just about anything. I mean, it, it's not a sub. I mean, they're not necessarily messing with their bread and butter. Yeah, yeah. And then on the other hand, anything that could happen often does happen if you give Omega enough time. Yes, that's true. Whether it's a color combination or a different movement or, you know, oh, I don't want a 9300 in this uh, Speedmaster. I want uh, uh, 861 or, or something like that. <laughs> yeah. If you give them enough time, they seem to get to just about all of the the permutations of, of these watches. So, man, I, I think a cool Railmaster, I mean, we, we're a little bit of a broken record on liking these kind of entry-level three-hander steel sports watches. Yeah. Whether it's, you know, wanting, uh, you know, a more, uh, whether it's liking something like the Explorer 1 or wanting something more basic from a Blanc Pain mm-hmm. or, or, or something like that. So I think the Railmaster could be amazing. Think about all the technology they have in the movement now. Uh, within within Omega, these amazing, you know, highly anti-magnetic movements with the coaxial escapement, they could make an absolutely fantastic new entry level to their brand that would bring in not only younger buyers, but more, you know, kind of cost-cautious buyers, which I think is where the market is right now. Yeah, sure. More price sensitivity. Yeah. I mean, one thing that, um, you know, of course, I think even more than the Seamaster and the Railmaster is they're playing up the Speedmaster 60th anniversary this year for obvious reasons. And um, one thing that, that did kind of come out early was the, um, there's a new racing dial version of the, um, coaxial, the master coaxial, um, uh, Speedmaster with the, the two sub dials and, you know, it's a beautiful watch. It's got the orange hands and the, and the orange accents and, you know, looks great. Um, I, I think they're probably going to hold back on, on the, the really cool stuff until the show and, and hopefully we'll like it. I mean, sometimes they're, they're, they're accused of going a little heavy on the special editions and kind of not really, I don't know, they kind of overplay the, you know, it's a, it's a panda with, you know, the, the figure of the moon or, or some sort of a mission patch or something, which is fine. They're all nice looking watches, but uh, there's really not a whole lot you can do to a Speedmaster for a 60th anniversary. I mean, it's, it's essentially the same watch that it was 60 years ago. Yeah, in many ways, I would agree that it 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 could be a bit of a tough watch to recreate. And and, and I dig the uh, the new racing but I do, you know, that's my absolute favorite Speedmaster is the you know, the 2004 LE, yeah. the Schumacher Japan LE with the flat gray dial and the orange accents. I really like the the way they, they kind of brought the old race style off the Mark II into the new Mark II. Mm-hmm. Certainly yeah. the possibility for some really amazing stuff there, and they always have some really cool stuff. Yeah. Uh, they, I mean, that meeting is always kind of legendary because you sit down in a very typically quite a long room with a big table mm-hmm. and, you know, with a blog to watch, we have at least three guys running cameras. Yeah. 
and they put like 40 watches on the table. Yeah, right. Yeah. And so it's a scramble. Like I, I've left that room and had to look at my camera to realize what it was I actually saw because you only have. Yeah, half an hour. By the time you actually get in the room and sit down and you finished ordering tea or water or whatever they're bringing to your table, mm-hmm. you have like about 40 minutes. Yeah. So, I mean, like that's one minute for a watch if you're, let's, you know, if, if you're, when you factor in all the time and maybe you get three minutes a watch because you've got three people there. <laughs> right. But three minutes with, with some of these things isn't that, you know, it's barely enough to compose a great wrist shot, get all the coverage shots you need. Yeah. Think about which ones should go on Instagram. It's it's just a lot to juggle in, in kind of a small window of time, but it's always really exciting because they'll, they'll bring out, you know, last year they had so many new Speedmasters with the moon and the pointer moon. Mm-hmm. And then they had the, the new... POGMT and steel with the black white bezel. Yeah. And they had, I think, at least one, maybe two new colorways for the Ploprof. So there's always a, a, a lot of eye candy at these uh, at these sort of meetings. And in some cases, they're ones that you won't see again because they're either very boutique limited or just very limited in general. Yeah. Which is kind of fun to, to get a chance to see them in person and take some photos. Yeah. And it's it's kind of a, um, uh, you know, going on to some other brands. I mean, it's going to be a big year for for some other dive watches as well. I mean, Eterna's got the the Contiki turning seventy this year, or at least the seventieth anniversary of Tor Heyerdahl's expedition out of the the Contiki watch. Um, they released a bronze version of a three hander dive watch, which is kind of cool. And then uh, Seiko, um, you know, the buzz. I mean, Seiko Seiko's been kind of crushing it with the, the kind of the pre-Basel buzz the past couple of years. Um, yeah. You know, this year they, they kind of teased out or somebody kind of ferreted out a photo of a new SBDX 019, I think is the number. And it's it's almost a spitting image of their first professional dive watch, which was the the reference 6215 or what people call the 62 MAS or 62 MAS. And it looks it looks pretty, pretty darn awesome. It's going to be a little expensive for Seiko, but... Uh, I can't wait to see that watch. Yeah, I mean, with something like the SBDX, you'd be looking at somewhere usually between two and three thousand dollars. Yeah, and it's going to be everything short of a Grand Seiko in many ways, uh, but an absolute premium from their sport lineup. If you can go online now and look up other SBDX models to give you an idea of how serious they are about that kind of family within the brand. Yeah, and for them to go back and do a, a direct kind of no fluff recreation of, of a watch that's not only hugely well loved by the enthusiast community but highly collectible and quite valuable right is uh is, is just a, i think a really fun way to go because so many brands kind of dodge the exact replica or the or the plan to make the aesthetic but in in a very serious tool watch yeah and you know that Seiko won't cut any corners, especially at this price point. You're going to have an excellent movement. Yeah. And the price point will also kind of cancel out the kind of ubiquity of something like the SRPs. Yeah. Yeah. It'll be a much more of a rarefied, you know, like buying a Marine Master or, you know, some of the other higher end spring drive stuff. And Right. And then um, I, I saw an early sort of embargoed press release, which is by the time this... Uh, podcast goes live it'll be uh, open to the public but um a citizen has a new pro master dive watch which is a it's it's an eco drive so it's one it's their solar family of watches but it's a new thousand meter watch that's kind of taking over for what what everybody kind of called the ecozilla or i don't know if they still even make the auto autozilla the automatic um, thousand meter watch that they made for for several years 
it, it looks like a beast. I, I think I sent you a picture of it. It's it's just a monstrous watch. It has like a locking bezel, a lot of color to it. It looks like it sits about as high as like a Big Mac on your wrist. Yeah, if you remember the the Edo with the locking bezel. Yeah. Or Edox. I actually have no idea how to say that brand. <laughs> I've never actually had a meeting with them. I've never heard a Swiss guy tell me how to. So yeah. I would say E-D-O-X, Edo, yeah. or Edo, or whatever. They had like this big tab. Yeah. On the outside, that was probably designed to be used with gloves yeah. or whatever, and and it looked like it was kind of in the same same kind of vein as that. I always have a a really fun time seeing the Citizen stuff because they're so tech fo- focused. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they the last couple of years they've been slowly miniaturizing their uh, like F one hundred satellite set watches. Yeah, and that's some really killer technology, especially for the mass market. Yeah. Um, for the mass market sort of sort of person who isn't concerned with accuracy, simplicity, and you know, essentially autonomy, the watch sets itself. Mm-hmm. If if that kind of matches the way that you dress and 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 whatever for travel, those are really really impressive watches. Fantastic bracelets for the price point, with a really trick expanding clasp. They've got some really cool tech in those watches. I mean, they're not cheap, right. and they're kind of a direct. Uh, competitor to the Astron, but they're smaller than an Astron. Yeah. And they have a bunch of technological merits as well as being uh, solar. Right, right. Which is pretty cool. And always a fun brand. And you know, these are the sorts of brands that we don't get to see at SIHH. Yeah, exactly. That literally get me really excited to actually go to Basel because it's a huge amount of work. And of course, it's quite a long time to be away from home and, and all those sorts of things. And I don't mean any of that as a complaint, but rather as a, a foil for the fact that even after four of these, it's soon to be my fifth, I'm I'm excited to be back in Basel and get to see new Seikos and new Citizens and of course new Rolexes and Seamasters and yeah. Contikis and 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 I always like being surprised too. Yeah, and it's it's I think it's a show that that is definitely more in our wheelhouse than than an SIHH, and I think our excitement is probably reflecting that. I, you know, I've got appointments with Doxa and Squala and Sin and you know all these these fun oh, little dive watch brands that that you know you don't see at SIHH and you just I never see it during the rest of the year so. Uh, I'm excited for that yeah. stuff too. So, yeah, Zen is always one of the absolute best meetings of the entire show. Yeah, yeah. Because even if they just give you a different version, uh, they're really, really nice people, and they're really nerdy about their watches. So that when you meet with even their their kind of press contacts, yeah, they know so much that when you ask a question, <laughs> yeah. they have the answer at hand. Like they're just very, very good at their job. It's not surprising that this is the sort of watch that they make, right? But they're really into it into the product yeah it's like and, going to a red uh, bar <laughs> yeah exactly it, it's it's great and uh and and their booth always has all almost all of their current lineup mm-hmm. so if there's something that you'd only seen you know on watch buys or whatever and you really wanted to try it on wrist that's a good chance to do it too which is always fun and uh yeah i mean so i think that's roughly there's probably not a lot more to do as far as the pre basel sort of thing uh, how how uh would you like people to follow what you're seeing at the show? Is Instagram probably best? Instagram for sure. Um, I I tend to kind of get a little crazy, a little overshare, uh, maybe too much on Instagram. But you know, Basel's the perfect place to do that. And I'll probably just be snapping photos at every meeting and you know, popping up photos as uh, as I get time. Um, I, I imagine you're going to do the same. You're also doing the vlog yeah. though, so that's that's kind of a daily thing for you. Yeah, so the the main thing would be uh, Instagram is at J.E. Stacy and Jason's at Jason Heaton. And then I'll also be doing, we'll have lots of stuff going up on at a blog to watch. Mm-hmm. I try not to double things up. And we actually have this really awesome guy named Marco running our 
social media now. So we'll have tons of stuff, including like Instagram stories. If you're not a normal a blog to watch follower, now's a great time to kind of jump back in and see what, what it's about. I guarantee some of the best wrist shots from the show, some really good stories, an inside look. And then if you want to take that one step further, this year I'll be doing the vlog like I did with SIHH. So if you go to, it's just youtube.com slash a blog to watch. And you'll see the vlogs are really clearly, the thumbnail says like day one and giant 300 point Helvetica text. <laughs> and you can kind of follow and, you know, the goal is to like between five and 10 minutes. And it's not so much like hands on with the watches or a lot of details. It's to give you an idea of what the show looks like. Yeah. And what the scene is and what the workload is like and how we get to see people and the fun times and the less than fun times. And, you know, how many people are there during the the open days. And we're going to try and capture it all. I think if you saw the SIHH vlogs, I would say they'll be similar. But I'm going to try and devote more time to the actual products. Oh, sure. Uh, so, so we're hoping with the SIHH vlogs, it was a lot of like environment and uh, and less like hands-on sort of stuff. So I think with the with these new ones, and if you watch the Braemont vlog, I think that's kind of where, where I would land. So when we show a watch, I'm going to try and have more details and things. But all, all of that kind of has to be produced and edited on the fly. So my promise is I'll, I'll do my best, but uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm not really a professional at these sorts of things at this moment. We're just kind of learning as we go. And, and we'll watch you and, and hear you get more and more tired and, and uh, oh yeah, but, <laughs> hoarse and, and pale as the week goes on. <laughs> by, by the third or fourth day, I'll just be wearing sunglasses all the time. Yeah, yeah. And just, just so much coffee. Yeah. And then, of course, uh, April 4th, we're planning to have our big sort of post-Basel wrap-up here on on the gray NATO. So definitely check back and, uh, get our kind of final thoughts on, on what we saw, uh, on that. Yeah. There'll be more of a, more of a fresh take that way. Yeah. Yeah. So what watches are you going to take? Yeah. Uh, that's always a a fun one. Uh, you know, I, uh, I used to take a bunch, uh, like a roll of watches and then you find that, you know, you, you constantly kind of have them in your bag because you don't want to leave them necessarily at the Airbnb and you, you got to keep one on wrist, but I'll wear it on my right wrist because you're trying so many watches on. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, and then a couple, maybe SIHH last year, I just brought one watch and then I really enjoyed that Yeah, because <laughs> yeah. there's only one to worry about and I didn't have the stress of like, oh, where did I put that other one? And, and, you know, is it in the, is my bag? Okay. Is it safe? I mean, camera gear and all that is also a concern, but I mean, one or two watches could easily outweigh the cost of a whole bag of camera gear. Yeah. So I, I think I'll probably just take one watch. Um, I was kind of flirting with just taking what I call my my CMT, which is my my lightly modded uh, Seiko SKX 007. Yeah. So it's modded with a uh, a twelve hour bezel, which is great, obviously for managing checking time at home. Mm-hmm. And I, I call it CMT. Just some some of the uh, guys on Instagram, I kind of asked what people thought as far as what would you call it and uh, CMT. And so instead of uh, you know, Greenwich Mean Time. It's a cheap Mean Time, <laughs> as it's a, a it's essentially like a twenty dollar modification from a bezel from Yabokis. So which, but one? that one's actually uh, in for service. Uh, I took it to Roldorf in town here, huh. and uh, he put it on his witchy, and and it really wasn't running that well. It's got to be about eight years I've owned that watch. It was kind of my first decent automatic, yeah. And uh, so it, it's now in for its kind of first ever service. So maybe it'll be done, and and that's what I'll bring. Otherwise, uh, leaning towards the Explorer too. It's just a really uh, simple and easy way to watch those two time zones, and it, it kind of suits the overall vibe of the show too. Yeah, for sure. And you? Yeah, I'm not sure what I'm going to do. I, you know, like you, I've in the past I've brought kind of a, a roll of watches, and 
even carry them in my bag and kind of switch between appointments and, you know, trying to kind of suit my wrist wear for the appointment. But the fact of the matter is you get to these appointments and nobody's looking at your wrist. They're, everybody's so tired and busy doing their own thing and, and whatever that you just don't, nobody cares really. It's really only in the kind of in the evenings at the events when you're kind of comparing wrists with the other guys, the other, you know, journalists and, and brand folks that are there. And, and so I'm not sure. I mean, I, last year I brought my, uh, my Tudor Submariner, the Snowflake. Uh, we had that kind of first night event with, with Tudor where they launched a couple of the new Black Bays. And I, I, I'm kind of leaning towards wearing that. And then uh, I, I'm either going to bring, I think I might just bring one more. I think I might bring uh, the Orange Dial uh, Sub 300 Doxa and or my, my old vintage Speedmaster just because it's kind of, uh, I don't know, it's just a fun watch to travel with. So we'll see. At, at, at most three watches. Well, those are all good choices. And uh, and any any new gear you're taking for the show, or or pretty much just the same kit you took to SIHH? No, pretty much the same. I mean, I'll bring my uh, my Topo Designs bag and and probably the Nikon DF with uh, with probably a 55 millimeter lens on it, and um, you know, just just some good comfortable shoes and that that nice breathable uh, Uniqlo jacket and uh... ah, rubbing it in. <laughs> yeah, right. Be <laughs> sweating in my uh, Super One Thirties. <laughs> Yeah, I um, I, I some you know some of you who follow on Instagram will have seen that I I'm, I eventually did I actually made I bought this camera before the episode where I talked about the cameras went up. That's kind of the lag between the episode because we can get them in every two weeks. But I did end up getting another camera that I'm absolutely in love with for many things, but it's not perfect. Uh, is the uh, the X100T the Fuji film, mm-hmm. and so the F is out, which made the T kind of a real sweet spot right now on Craigslist. So I think I got it for about a thousand Canadian and for a fixed lens that can do anything from street to my kids to watches like it does a, a great wrist shot. Yeah, it's amazing as a photo camera. I really love it. I love compared to the RX 100. I love that you really feel like you're controlling more of a manual camera. I know that's largely comes down to the buttons and the dials because, of course, it's still a digital camera. Yeah. But the camera's very fast. It, you can basically run it full manual. Uh, so you're setting everything from ISO to aperture to shutter speed and, and, and such on the fly, which I like quite a bit. And while my brains had to do some kind of remapping because the controls are so different from the Canon, oh, and a yeah. couple of them are like problematic. Like changing ISO on the fly is a pain. I think the camera assumed more people would use auto. Oh, yeah. Um, but because it's a... Uh, you know, because it's an APS-C size sensor, it does a pretty good job with noise. So I find that I, I, when needed, I'll crank the ISO way up and preserve a decent shutter speed. But, eh, you know, that that kind of thing is, the controls are just something you kind of get used to. It also demolishes batteries. <laughs> Uses these itty-bitty little batteries, you know, maybe a th- roughly a third of the mass of a Canon cell. Mm-hmm. And then it just just rips through them. I have four. Wow. And like in a day of normal shooting around Vancouver, which is really like some wrist shots. If I see a car I like, I'll take a picture. Just some light kind of stuff. And then maybe I come home and, and snap a couple portraits of my daughters, whatever. That'll kill a battery. So I mean, it's good to have four. They don't they charge in the camera if you want, so you don't have to carry a, an external charger. But you, I don't think you could get away with like one battery for a whole day, whereas... Maybe maybe Basel's an exception, but I definitely could have done SIHH because I was shooting so much video for the vlog. Mm-hmm. I definitely could have done SIHH with just my two batteries for the Canon without charging them. Oh, yeah. Yeah. 
because the you know you're not using the screen to compose the shot you're using a regular optical viewfinder so no real power usage there right and then the flash of course just destroyed like a canon 580 will just eat double a's but you just carry like 20 sure and charge them at night but uh so i'm used to canon how long those these last but then i think these smaller cameras like the x100 and the other fujis and even into the like the sony a7 which you have some experience with they can just tear through batteries oh it's such a huge difference i you know i took my my nikon df to sahh and, and did that uh that uh, visit to Parmigiani, which was a full day of visiting, you know, f- three or four of their facilities. And, you know, I took a lot of photos there and then, uh, you know, I got home, downloaded the photos and didn't touch the camera again until we went to Bremont. And I realized because I, I realized that I still had the photos on the, on the memory card in the camera that I hadn't even charged the battery since the Parmigiani <laughs> trip. And I did the entire Bremont trip with the same battery and it only went down like one tick. So, yeah. you know, really impressive. I mean, you can't beat, you know, full-sized SLR batteries for, for long life so you're taking both cameras or yeah i'll have the 5d i'm actually i'll have um we're renting a 5d mark 4 hmm. which i'm very much in love with but can't afford yeah and then i'll have my mark 3 as a backup body a couple lenses for that the x100 and a gopro like the vlogging rig yeah the the one that gets you all the looks when you're just talking to it in, in public <laughs> right but yeah so i think that's uh that's roughly the kit i probably don't even need to take the x100 but i just really like it and and you gave me this um bright orange strap oh yeah right uh which i'm really liking just so yeah i think i'll bring it along and it, it, it fits easily in the tenba and it gives me some flexibility if we go to like an evening event and i don't want to carry as much gear oh perfect but i still might want to grab a wrist shot of something cool or or capture some quick video for the vlog the video's not great if somebody if you're thinking of buying an x100t for video i would i would convince you just to use your phone maybe Mm -hmm. but you know i I think the the reviews are quite accurate and that they say this isn't the camera to use unless it's your absolute last choice for video oh sure so but in in a pinch at work that's what i shot the hands-on stuff with at bremont uh, because at least it has autofocus, whereas my Mark III doesn't. Oh, right. Uh, so that's uh, that's a plus in a pinch, uh, and it will obviously focus closer than something like a GoPro, which is a fairly wide angle of view. I think that's probably nerdier than anybody wanted as far as some of these cameras go, but if you're in the market for an X100T, now is kind of a sweet time to pick it up, and uh, if you want to shoot things like watches and your family, it's a great little camera. Cool. I think that's where I would leave it. Uh, what are you feeling? Some final notes? You want to wrap it up? Yeah, let's wrap it up and pass it on to uh, Q and A. Um, yeah, yeah. So, uh, what do you got for us? Well, this was something. It was a movie that I watched on on my flight on Virgin Atlantic Airline over to to London for the Bremont event. Uh, what was it? A couple of weeks ago. It was it was a movie. It was a documentary called Don't Look Down, and it was about Richard Branson's attempt to. Take a, a hot air balloon nonstop across the Atlantic, and then later he did. Uh, he attempted to do it across the Pacific as well, and it was kind of coincidental timing because earlier, not much earlier, you had told me that you would listen to a uh, kind of a podcast or an interview with Richard Branson, kind of a profile of yeah you know, how I made this how how I made this um, about excellent kind of his career and and kind of where he got to where he did, and this uh, documentary was great, and it, it was. There was no, it was really no coincidence, I guess, that it was on a Virgin Atlantic flight since he founded and owns the airline. But uh, it was really excellent, uh, really well done. And, you know, it, it really focused not on so much Branson's, you know, business side. It was purely about these two 
sort of adventures that he undertook. And, and I hadn't realized, you know, the, the hardships and the, the failures and the near death experiences that they had on, on both of those journeys. He, he did both with a, uh, Swedish sort of balloon expert slash inventor, um, who was kind of a crazy guy himself and somewhat controversial. And, um, you know, they, they, they both almost died. I would say two or three times during, during both of those, uh, expeditions i i've had trouble kind of tracking down a link to where you can watch this outside of you know a seatback uh screen on a virgin atlantic flight but um it is available i believe on on itunes so definitely worth looking out for or if you happen to be on a virgin atlantic flight and you're kind of thumbing through the the video options and trying to figure out what to watch um and, and you see don't look down uh i i really highly recommend it it, it fits right in with Kind of the stuff that that we like on on the Grenado, uh, as well as um, you know, just uh, just a a good film about a, a really interesting guy. Oh, very cool. We'll make sure to at least attempt to source a link to that. It might be regional for iTunes, but we'll do our best. Uh, Grenado dot com for the show notes and such. And for mine, I have uh, I have uh, kind of an absolute left field play for my final notes. You know, a couple times I've recommended music. But this is a, a, a different band that I've just kind of gotten into, and it's not the style of music I'm generally uh, kind of inclined to love. But I figured, you know, we're doing this kind of mixed Q&A pre-Basel episode. I'd throw something in to give somebody maybe a bit of a palate cleanser, put you in a different state of mind from all the watch news that's going to pour over you for the next week or two. <laughs> um, so this is a band out of um, Ann Arbor, Michigan, and they're called Wolfpeck, huh. which is V-U-L-F-P-E-C-K. And it's uh, anywhere from, I think it's four guys normally, and then they occasionally have um, Antoine Stanley, which is their uh, a vocalist that appears in some of their tracks, and then they have various other collaborators. But they're essentially these um, jazz, funk virtuosos, like some of the most talented musicians I've come across <laughs> in many ways. But when you read up more about the band, they're like deep music nerds. The kind of front man, um, Jack Stratton, he does these th- this uh, series called Holy Trinities. I think it's one audio podcast and one YouTube video so far where he he kind of shares a list of the three best of what he thinks of something. So, But it's really esoteric, so it's the three best center hits on the snare drum. <laughs> so only the middle hits, which is kind of appar- apparently a rare play. But he knows, you know, who produced the track and who decided the mix and all these sorts of things. And I kind of have a deep love for any type of nerdiness. And as it turns out, these guys are so into music, kind of like a lot of us would be, you know, into watches or adventure or whatever. And it's kind of like uh, infectious. I would say even if you hate the idea of a jazz funk fusion, it's kind of hard for me to explain in uh, in text. I, I should have checked the like copyright laws. Maybe if I talk about it, I'm allowed to play some. But if you're listening, just go to YouTube. They have a huge YouTube presence and look up the song 1612 or 1612 or It Gets Funkier or Wait for a Moment. All of these tracks are in the uh, show notes, but those will give you kind of a crash course in, in what they're about. It's not too jazzy. It's often very funky and the bass lines are unbelievable. And I'd guarantee that give it a chance. I think it'll genuinely make you kind of in a happier mood. They're kind of silly. They dress kind of like they couldn't care less. There's some great performances of them on like late night where they're clearly not playing by any of the kind of established rules. <laughs> uh, quite famously, they 
uh, wanted to earn some money to do a tour, so they put up uh, an album of uh, silent songs on Spotify and just asked anybody who liked the band to play it whenever they didn't want to listen to music, like when they were asleep (laughs) or not at their computer. (laughs) And before Spotify really cued into what was going on, they made enough to do a tour that was free. Wow. Wow. So uh, it wasn't a fortune, but it was enough for these guys to do a tour. And then, you know, like last week they had a, they put up a video, I think on their Facebook, where they were playing essentially as the backup band for Mike McDonald and Solange. Huh. I mean, that that's yeah. pretty legit. Yeah. And I, I would say anybody should check these guys out, especially especially if you're into like perform like music at a performance level. Because what these guys are doing and their aesthetic is not like anything I've kind of come across. It's very analog in the way it looks and it's very there's a lot of like affectation to its presentation that i find really refreshing in that it, it's it's kind of anti-glitz sure by all means swing by final notes or just go to youtube and type in wolfpack yeah great youtube videos all of that highly recommended nice well with that should we uh should we kind of segue into the q a and then you and i can run off and start our basel packing for the long journey yeah, for sure. Uh, so I, yeah, looping back on kind of that failed promise of our Q&A segments, we're hoping to continue to cut through the backlog of these questions. And I am answering all questions that come into email and saving, kind of earmarking the ones we like for eventual use. But uh, we have a trio of kind of excellent questions for you now. So uh, I think we'll pass you along to that. And thanks very much for listening. And if you have a question of your own, thegraynado at gmail.com. Okay, so Ian in Singapore writes in to ask, I've recently fallen in love with retro divers. Initially, I saw pictures of the Longines Legend Diver. Great aesthetic, but the lug lengths are too long for me. I also greatly lust after the JLC Polaris tribute watches, but will likely never justify spending that amount. My current, most likely candidate is an older Aquaterra 2500 black dial with a vintage Tropic strap. Do you think this would suit the above criteria? Are there alternatives you could suggest that would beat it? And then slightly separately, how do you guys feel about retro tropic straps? Uh, so Jason, why don't you take this one? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, thanks for the uh, for the question, Ian. I, I, it feels like since you're drawn, to, uh, you mentioned the Aquaterra, which I think is a great watch, but I have to wonder if it'll scratch your itch adequately because the examples you gave that you're really drawn to um, tend to be those twin crown sort of super compressor style dive watches. So, you know, you mentioned the JLC and you mentioned uh, the Longines. I would suggest, you know, there are a couple of uh, a couple of other options that you can mention. And I think uh, one of them is the Alpina just came out with their Heritage Diver, I think it's called, which I think is one of the nicer twin crown uh, compressor style dive watches that uh, that have come out in, in the recent years. And I think it kind of hits the right size and aesthetic that you're talking about. Also in kind of the, the twin crown area, I know that uh, Halios, which is one of our favorite brands, is coming up with something that, that is eminently affordable, probably less than a thousand bucks. And that's going to be the Laguna, the Series 2 or the second generation Laguna, which is also a twin crown dive watch that might be worth looking at. So, you know, th- those are two options I would say look at. You could also certainly go vintage if you're kind of willing to head down that route. There are a lot of... Uh, smaller size, uh, super compressor dive watches from the 60s and 70s that, that can be found from brands that, that a lot of people maybe haven't heard of. I know there you know some by Baylor and 
Um, I know Hamilton made a few of these that, that can be found for not, not a lot of money. So, um, and then to address your, your tropic strap question, I think that, I think they're really cool, especially on these twin crown dive watches. Uh, and there are a few companies that sell modern versions of these straps. Watch Gecko has, has a version that that's out these days. Um, and, and hopefully we'll see more because I, I just think that sort of basket weave rubber is, is a really great look. There's a guy named uh, Bill Mahoney who goes by the name Squinky on some of the watch forums and I believe on uh, on eBay as well. And he sells the actual vintage ones in huge numbers. I don't know where he, where he stockpiled these from, but uh, um, he might be worth contacting through eBay or you can just kind of surf the forums or look on Watch Recon for, for Tropic Straps and... Um, I think I've bought from him in the past and, and, you know, he's a reliable seller and, uh, and he does a, a pretty brisk business in vintage Tropic style straps. So those would be my recommendations. James, uh, what do you have for Ian? Yeah. I mean, if, if you're wanting to go vintage diver or, you know, new vintage diver, obviously look at the or 65, both the 40 and the 42 millimeter versions. You have the new Halio Seaforth could really scratch the same itch. And if you want to have that second crown, I, I think Jason fully covered it. There's so many to choose from beyond the Longines, uh, and especially when you get into vintage. And then as far as the strap goes, I don't have any experience with the new ones, but Jason sent me one of the old ones, which I've worn on my Sylvana Diver, and it's awesome. So I fully recommend the vintage Tropic Rubber. They look great. They wear awesome. They don't feel like you're buying something old or flimsy or um, you know fragile or, or dried up or anything like that. Just fully wearable, really cool. And uh, yeah, I think I think that's the way to go with it, Ian. So, thanks very much for writing in and uh, send us an email with whatever you choose. I'd love to uh, love to hear follow up. And David writes in and asks, "I started my higher end collecting with a couple of Breitlings, and I've expanded out as I refine my choices in style. I have dived, but I do not actively now. So my choices are running more to pilot watches and even more vintage, say World War II military watches. For traveling, I have a Seiko Astron GPS." So that leaves me with considering getting rid of one of my Breitlings, and I'm wondering how you folks started with the selling side. Did you go to a dealer and see what you could get in trade? Did you sell on eBay or watch you seek? James, you know, maybe you can kind of kick this off by telling David how you've approached selling watches in the past. I think all of the watches I've sold, I've either sold uh, directly to friends or via watch you seek. Um, you know, I'm a fairly long-standing member on that forums almost specifically for selling in many cases. I'd, I'd have done some commenting, but for the most part, not that active of a commenter. And I use the uh, the login for selling watches occasionally. A dealer will probably be your safest route, specifically because you'll have a middle entity, but will net you less as they need to make some money in that process as well. Depending on the value of the watch and how you're willing to sell it, you know, only in the U.S., only face-to-face in your city, etc. I would look into pretty much all the options. If your goal is to sell locally, then start with Craigslist. But be prepared for the problems of Craigslist. And then when you get to Watch You Seek or, or, a, or a forum, be prepared with those, which is you're going to get way more low balls. Uh, people who really think they know more about what maybe you're selling than you do. And, uh, and then you have the issue of selling, insuring, shipping, and being comfortable with that process. And as a seller, uh, you're at the most risk in that transaction. A buyer, especially with PayPal protection, you have almost no risk, like next to none. 
especially if you follow simple like simple rules like have some way of tracing the line between your money and the buyer and if you do so you know with PayPal and with a normal PayPal transaction that has fees where you have buyer protection then you're very safe but as a seller you don't necessarily have those same safety plays so you do have to be fairly comfortable selling and I don't know if starting with something the value of a Breitling is the way to go and also if you haven't been selling you won't be able to sell on watch you seek or time zone because you'll need a certain number of posts attributed to your account before you can get access to the sales form. That's a fairly new rule. I believe it's 50 posts for Watch You Seek. I, I don't post on or, or sell via time zone. I just kind of committed to Watch You Seek. But uh, I've had a very good luck there. And, and I find that for the most part, I've never had any issue with uh, people being any more or less than what they appeared to be via their PMs. They pay and then you have the money and you ship it and then they're happy. But uh, you do have to understand that while most people feel the most risk just by sending money into the void, you're at the most risk when you send a watch in the mail, even if you already have the money in your account. So just keep that in mind. If you're more comfortable selling through a dealer, be sure that you're very upfront or they're very upfront as far as the, the percentage that they're going to take out of the transaction and how quickly they feel they can move the watch and those sorts of things. Jason? I've sold more watches than I, I care to admit uh, on Watch You Seek. I, I think in my earliest years of kind of getting into the watch hobby, Watch You Seek was where I not only sold watches, but I, I bought a quite a few. And so I, I can't really remember having a bad transaction on Watch You Seek. I, I, I won't go so far as to say that it's, you know, 100% trustworthy or kind of, you know, hang my name on, on recommending them entirely. But um, I, I think that there's some safeguards in place that um, – that kind of help in terms of uh, just common sense of looking at uh, you know users that you're you're dealing with or that are making offers um, or writing to you. Kind of look at their history. You can you can search the history of a user and and find and find out you know have they posted before? Have they sold? Have there been any you know negative feedback regarding them as a seller or a buyer? Do they, are they belligerent on the forums when they're commenting? Have they proven to be troublesome? Um, that sort of thing. You know, what's their what's their post count? What's their history uh, with Watch You Seek? The other thing is, you, you know, if you insist on on shipping with insurance, using your own shipping method that, that you prefer, that you trust, whether that's, you know, I, I always, if I sell a watch online, uh, or if I'm shipping a watch somewhere, I always insist on doing, you know, next day shipping with insurance, and I'll either build that into my price that I'm asking, or ask the the buyer to pay for that because it's the safest. I don't want a watch sitting, you know, in some depot somewhere at FedEx over a weekend or for multiple days, or sitting on the back of a truck. Um, and, and so I kind of set up the 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 entire relationship in that way right from the get go. Um, uh, you know, just uh, in closing, uh, there's another f smaller forum that I've sort of developed trusting relationships uh, on in the past few years, and, and it's called the Dive Watch Connection. And uh, DWC is pretty protective in the sales forums. They they require a minimum number of posts in the other parts of the forum before you're allowed to post for sale. It's it's kind of a good good bunch of guys that um, sort of all know each other and look out for each other. Um, and, and it's just, it's worthwhile, you know, before jumping right into selling, um, which a lot of people kind of frown on anyway, if a guy just shows up to sell, um, is to kind of establish some relationships, build a track record for yourself, um, build the trust 
by maybe, you know, talking about some of your other watches or contributing to some other posts and, and, uh, you know, getting your name out there before you just sort of show up and, and say, Hey, I got a watch for sale. So, um, you know, between James and, and my advice, I, I think, you know, we, we both wish you well and, and, uh, you know, just, just keep your eyes and ears open and, and, uh, and use your common sense and you should, you should be fine. So thanks for writing in, uh, David and, and best of luck. And Greg writes in saying, I'm looking for a no-date, simple, three-hand watch. Can be auto or manual, 39 to 44 millimeters, but 42 millimeters is my sweet spot. Any style is considered, but dive is my go-to. Budget is anything up to 500 British pounds. The no-date part of my request is the most important. I just want something I can throw on and go. Uh, So, Jason, what what do you figure? So... uh, for reference, I think 500 British pounds is about $615 as of the U uh, S as of the time we're recording. Yeah. So I, you know, I'm going to recommend one watch and it's one that I've talked about on the show, uh, not too long ago. Uh, one that I reviewed on Hodinkee and, and certainly put up plenty of photos on Instagram about, and it is, uh, it's from Unimatic. Now, um, the one that I had reviewed was called the Modelo Uno, which was, uh, their dive version. Uh, which I regret to inform is, is sold out, but I think Unimatic is a brand to pay attention to. And you might even find, uh, you know, the Modelo Uno, uh, pop up on sales forums as people buy them and, and get tired of them or want to resell them. It's, it's just a really sleek sort of minimalist dive watch that takes cues from a couple of vintage pieces. Um, if, if, you know, maybe something other than a dive watch is, is more your, your cup of tea, I would suggest looking at their, uh, Modelo Due which means model two in Italian, which is really kind of an original field watch. Um, uh, you know, like a really sort of unique styled field watch that has a really high domed crystal and, and a, a really minimalist sort of angular case, modern dial that comes in a couple different colors. Um, and Unimatic uses, uh, Seiko automatic movements for the watches, and then they eliminate the date function. So kind of hits your, your primary objective, which is a no date watch. Um, but one thing to note, Unimatic does only make a limited number of these watches. So there is a good chance that they will sell out of these, but I know that, um, you know, it's in their best interest to keep cranking out new, new creations and, and, uh, sell them. And if, if they stick to kind of their track record of really great looking minimalist, affordable watches, um, I would definitely tell you to take a look at, uh, at Unimatic. James, any, uh, any suggestions on your end? Yeah, so I fully agree with the Unimatic, and the only way that I would really uh, bend on that would be is if you can extend your budget even just a little. I have three new recommendations that cost just a little more. So first would be the Archimede Flyger. Just pick your size. I would go with the 39mm, but you could definitely do a 42. The next would be the Autodromo Group B. It's 39mm, no date, awesome, not like anything else on the market really. And finally, the forthcoming Halio Seaforth will be an awesome little diver, no date, multiple dial options, multiple bezel options, and will come in, I believe, uh, within like about $140 US of your price point. So I-, I would just encourage you to save a little more if any of those three kind of uh, fit your budget or, or you know, maybe sell a watch or, or something. That's what I would do. And uh, I think between those four watches, the Unimatic, the Archimede, the Autodromo, and the Seaforth from Halios, you've got four just excellent no-date options that cost not too far 
uh, above or below your max budget. Good call. Yeah, by all means, Greg, uh, please send us an email. Let us know what you did get. Send us a photo, tag us on Instagram, whatever. We definitely want to know what you chose. Always interested in that sort of uh, process in the mind that takes you from uh, what you want to what you finally decide upon. And to everyone else who's listening, if you have your questions, please write in to thegraynado at gmail.com. We're going to get to as many as we can uh, this coming year via these shorter Q&A episodes. And we're slowly cutting through our backlog. Some of these questions were from about six months ago, so... <laughs> we're getting there okay and that about does it for this installment of Q&A we hope to have another set for you soon and uh, as always thanks so much for listening hit the show notes for more details you can follow us on Instagram I'm at Jason Heaton James is at J.E. Stacy, and follow the show at The Grey NATO if you have any questions for us please do write to thegraynado at gmail.com and please subscribe and review wherever you find your podcasts or grab the feed directly from our new website thegraynado.com Music throughout the show is Siesta by Jazzar via the Free Music Archive. And until next time, we leave you with this quote from adventurer and expedition leader John Amet. Adventure isn't hanging on a rope off the side of a mountain. Adventure is an attitude that we must apply to the day-to-day obstacles in life.